0: The future of business. Future of business. Future of business. More global and more decentralized. Making sure that enterprises are a lot more responsible. Smart cities. More collaboration.
1: Consumer-driven. Productivity. Environmental and social responsibility. Global. Human-centered. Purposeful.
0: Individualized. Automation. Big data. Climate change. Space exploration.
1: Renewable energy.
0: Information security. Exciting and digital.
1: Hello and welcome to the Future of Business podcast. As always, I'm your host, Alison MacArthur. Today on the podcast, we have a very special guest who has been pivotal in developing the podcast and is a love professor here at the Said Business School. Tim Galpin is a Senior Lecturer of Strategy, Innovation and M&A and Academic Director of the MBA Programme here at the Business School. Additionally, he is a consultant to many boards and author of four management books, two of which were bestsellers and have been published in five languages. So welcome professor to the podcast. Thank you very much for coming on.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So um, I was wondering if you could just start off with a very high level view of um, how you got into the industry and how MA has changed over the, the years that you've been involved.
0: Yeah, so I started out actually in industry. I was working at an aerospace company and then I moved to over in California Um, And then I moved to London, started in the consulting world, mainly doing operations strategy and uh, customer service type consulting in the retail industry. Uh, And from there, back then, re-engineering was the big mantra in the consulting world. So um, we were doing that in the retail world. I moved into more general strategy consulting and re-engineering was really about major downsizing. And as that was occurring, I saw that companies were cutting out a lot of the fat and they were cutting into their muscle in some cases. And I realized that they couldn't cut their way to greatness. So I thought uh, they were going to need to grow and a shortcut to growth is mergers and acquisitions. So I guess I got lucky or there was some foresight where I saw the next merger wave coming. This was the mid 90s. And uh, in 95, that occurred, and I kind of hit that first merger wave. And I started uh, a little consulting practice around mergers and acquisitions, but mainly on the integration side, because the bankers had the transaction side locked up. The attorneys obviously were doing the legal and regulatory work, but nobody was really doing the merger integration, bridging the transaction with the implementation. So I saw a gap in the market, and that's how I got into it.
1: Mm -hmm. So, as you mentioned, M&A activity comes in waves over the years. Um, What sort of, obviously, which are contributed to by various macroeconomic factors, which um, factors are particularly relevant today?
0: Well, we're seeing a lot of the same factors that affect previous waves with uh, cheap debt, because companies will use cheap debt to fund their acquisitions, high stock prices, because they'll use that as a currency as well, When a company's stock is up, it becomes a good currency for mergers and acquisitions. And this one's a little bit different from uh, the perspective of there's a lot of disruption across various industries. Uh, So as tech has uh, started to disrupt many different industries, um, that's also driving the current M&A wave.
1: Mm hmm. mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, could you discuss maybe a couple of particular trends that you've observed in recent years? I know you mentioned tech, but yeah, any particular industries or types of um, M&A or jurisdictions in particular that are?
0: Yeah, of course. So it's really interesting in the tech world because uh, everybody thinks that they're very innovative companies. And, yeah, they do some good internal innovation, but a lot of it is acquired. So they'll do... uh, Uh, innovation through acquisition. They'll also do what's called aqua hiring. So as they need staff and particular skill sets, they'll go out and rather than try to hire 100 engineers individually, one at a time, they'll go out and buy a company that has 100 engineers. So they instantly uh, have a group of, of technicians that they need. So that's in the tech world. The other interesting component is that a lot of people think that it's all about high tech these days, and it obviously is a big industry, but uh, the data shows that last year in 2018 the biggest industry for mergers and acquisitions was uh, chemicals and mining. So kind of the real nuts and bolts industries because of consolidation in the industry, but also uh, there's a relationship with technology because the minerals that go into making batteries, for example, for different tech devices uh, and uh, the electric cars are all have to come out of the ground. So mining used to be a traditional acquisition for iron ore to make steel for construction. Now they're buying uh, mines that mine uh, uh, rare earth minerals to go into technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those kinds of trends are really spreading around all kinds of different industries. So acquisitions isn't just a technology phenomenon right now for uh, innovation or acquiring, but across all kinds of industries
1: mm-hmm. so you know as as you're mentioning like you know a lot of the uh the drivers be- behind acquisitions are you know um acquiring um sort of human capital and um, ip and that sort of thing mm-hmm. and i guess we've witnessed this a lot um i know it's not just the tech industry but you know uh, companies like, you know, Google or Facebook that are acquiring kind of new startups or even in the um, the banking industry, there's a lot of um, incubators right. who um, are sort of, you know, mentoring startups and I guess with the aim of, um, I guess, kind of absorbing them into, into the organization if they prove to be successful. Um, Do you think that's a a good strategy for these companies and how does that impact on um, competition in these industries?
0: Yeah, that's a great question because it's a good strategy if they can implement well. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that isn't just to do a bit of the venture capital approach where they're investing in some um, some startups that look promising and then the ones that uh, end up being very promising they will acquire. That's just doing a transaction. And that's okay, but that's not the end game. The end game is to make the transactions work. And that's something that I've been working on for a lot of years with companies. Again, to try to bridge that transaction with the implementation is really where mergers and acquisitions pay off. Because it's one thing to buy a company for the innovative technology they have, the individuals, the people that they might have, uh, the assets that they bring with them, but it's another thing to make those work and to implement, because you, if you're hiring in capital-intensive industries like tech, consulting, legal, these are all areas, accounting, uh, that have gone through waves of acquisitions or going through waves of acquisitions, uh, the knowledge can walk out the door in the form of people. They can just take it with them. So there's a lot around motivating the workforces, retaining the key talent that you're buying. And a lot of companies overlook that because the deal world is made up of financial types that really uh, see the Mm -hmm. mergers and acquisitions as a transaction. Mm -hmm. And that's only half of the equation. The other half is the implementation
1: because yeah as you mentioned so you've you've written actually a lot about um, you know the importance of integration integration management and having you know like a comprehensive end to end deal flow model uh, at what stage in the process a company is faltering like what steps of that model are they
0: yeah so in my model there's three the three basic phases the pre deal the deal and then the post deal and so there's different uh, steps within those phases 10 steps in my model uh, and companies can make mistakes across every stage. Uh, And everything from formulating their M&A strategy, they may be accelerating a strategy that's just a poorly chosen strategy. If they want to get into certain markets, they may be choosing the wrong markets. Just because they're doing acquisitions in those markets, they may be doing those fairly successfully, but it may be the wrong market. So their strategy is wrong. And then when you move into uh, doing due diligence around the target companies you're looking at buying, they make a lot of mistakes by only doing very superficial due diligence or only looking at the financial or operational aspects and ignoring the cultural and human capital aspects that can come back to bite them uh, mm-hmm. later on. Uh, and then as they do the valuation of the companies they're looking to acquire, they can end up uh, getting deal fever as it's called and paying too much for those companies. Uh, closing the transaction a lot of negotiation goes on and what goes in your sales and purchase agreement and they may stumble through that uh, and really overlook some key elements in the actual deal closing phase and then after integration they make a lot of mistakes in implementation or after uh, the transaction during implementation they make a lot of uh, the integration mistakes that companies are prone to make uh, ignoring culture uh, they don't integrate quickly enough. I always talk about prudent speed with my clients. I talk about that heavily in my book. It's not about reckless speed and slamming two companies together. It's about prudent speed. Mm-hmm. Doing enough analysis to see where you want to integrate, how much you want to integrate, but then doing that in a very prudent way. Uh, and But rapid as possible, because it's like pulling off a Band-Aid. It's going to be slow and painful or fast and painful. Uh, so, and then finally... They don't look at the uh, evaluation of how they've done. So that's the final stage in my model. And they will just move on to the next deal without really assessing what did we do well, what could we do better in the future, and did we achieve the financial and strategic goals for that deal. The best companies really take time to look at that. They measure it along the way, and they do a post-deal assessment to say, you know, yeah, we did or we did not achieve, and what can we learn for future transactions?
1: Mm-hmm. And does this type of measurement, is this sort of uh, um, consistent across the industry, or is this specific to each company have their own sets of measurements?
0: It should be specific to each deal, because okay. each deal is done differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's often done for various, uh, either strategic or financial operational reasons, so every deal is different uh, throughout the process, so the measurement needs to be different. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, there isn't really, there's kind of standard categories of measurement around operational measurements, financial measurements, um, the uh, people measurements, culture, um, but there's not necessarily a specific measure that fits all deals. So it has to be deal specific.
1: Mm-hmm. And could we talk a bit about deal fever? So um, a lot of acquirers typically overpay for companies. Does this come down to a an overestimate Overestimation of their ability to integrate the two companies, or is it more around uh, the way that it's valued this potential synergies and you know something incorrect? There?
0: Yeah, it's all of the above. Mm-hmm. Really, when they're looking at what they the value they can get out of a company from an acquisition perspective, they're assessing the cost synergies where they have overlaps, whether it's in back office headquarters, those sorts of overlaps, or in operational overlaps, and may have. Adjoining sites, they may, if they're a retail company or a bank, for example, that has outlets on the high street, they may have outlets across the street from each other so they can uh, rationalize those. But there's often an overestimation of how much they can do that. Uh, so, and they also look at uh, if they're in a bidding process, if the uh, seller is going through an auction and you're one of the potential bidders. Uh, You're always trying to figure out what do you need to bid to win that acquisition, if you're bidding to win. Mm -hmm. And uh, that drives the acquisition premiums up. The typical premium these days is about 38%. So you're going to have to find that value when you implement back to the implementation again. So uh, companies are paying a lot more when there's more bidders in the process. And especially now when we're in the peak of uh, another M&A wave valuations are really sky high so there's no cheap acquisitions out there Uh, that happens usually in the beginning of waves uh, but that hasn't been the case for about 10 years now so if you're going to pay that much you have to really work hard at getting that value back out of the deal
1: so there is a sort of like a psychological element here where you know there might be like a fear of missing out or you know another company acquiring it and you know what could have happened yeah definitely yeah
0: it's the fear of missing out it's the animal spirits as they call it you don't want to lose Uh, mergers and acquisitions gets to be a very competitive kind of game where you don't want your competitor to get the asset that you're looking at or the company you're looking at Uh, so you both go after it much too aggressively, uh, so there's a lot of the kind of human nature elements that start kicking in, mm. and you start paying too much.
1: Mm-hmm. And would you say it's the case that there is a um, an overemphasis on um, val- you know sh- shareholder value um, relative to um, considering the concerns of um, other stakeholders when it comes to.
0: Anyway. Yeah, it's not, it's not necessarily shareholder value, but the incentives in the merger and acquisition world are aligned to make deals happen. So if you look at the way investment bankers are rewarded, they get rewarded for when the deal closes or completes, as it's called here in the UK, mm-hmm. uh, and funded, then they get their payout. So there's an incentive to have their clients actually do a transaction. Uh, not that they're pushing through bad transactions, but there is an incentive to make sure the transaction completes. Uh, on the buy side, for the corporate acquirers, there's an incentive there f- to get a transaction done because a CEO is incented, and senior executives are often incented through uh, growth. And again, back to that shortcut. Short termism, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. short short term and shortcut to growth. is mergers and acquisitions. So the incentives both on the corporate side, on the advising side, are often to make the deal happen uh, and that can push people into paying too much as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess on the, you know, as you mentioned, like the CEOs are kind of maybe incentivized you know for sort of uh, self-interested reasons possibly because their compensation is uh, I guess linked to an appreciation and they maybe want to have you know because typically their tenure is what like around five years or something they Mm. want some sort of legacy perhaps um and then on the other side there are you know the the management board of acquirees um I guess are incentivized not to go through with acquisitions perhaps because um um because they tend to get replaced after an acquisition, so how does the um, how does that work?
0: Well, it depends. Yeah. So it depends on the incentives, both on mm-hmm. the buy side, the acquirer, mm-hmm. uh, and that's often driven by you know the short termism as we were just speaking about. Um, but on the sell side, as you mentioned, sometimes those incentives are encouraging a sale because uh, whether you're a founder or you have uh, some Ownership of the company uh, through equity. There's an incentive there because it's a wealth creation event. So Mm -hmm. there's an incentive to sell Mm -hmm. Uh, if your management of an ongoing Company that isn't necessarily going to do a wealth creation event for you then you may be uh, Disincented to do a deal because you might lose your job. So it really depends on where the incentives are both on the buy side, on the sell side, what the type, what type of behavior uh, are they incenting? And it's something that, uh, again, comes back to deal specific uh, dynamics, uh, but incentives matter. They mm-hmm. definitely matter.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, And then, so obviously, nowadays, corporations are bigger than they've ever been, more multinational. um, So it's particularly important to have good um, competition legislation in place and for regulators to be very diligent. Um, Britain has one of the most open markets for acquisitions. Am I correct in saying that?
0: Well, it has traditionally been that way, although they have... uh, depends on the regime that's in charge of the Competition and Markets Authority is the entity that reviews different transactions here. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the States, it's the SEC, the FTC, there's there's several different entities. Uh, And with the move towards more national security concerns, um, we're seeing this in the States, we're seeing this in the UK, in the EU, they're looking at more deals with more scrutiny. So A lot of the protectionism that's happening around the world is slowing deals down so for example 2018 was a record year for deals Uh, first quarter of 2019 is slowed right down uh, because of the uh, protectionism that's going on brexit here is creating a lot of uncertainty markets don't like uncertainty including the M&A market Uh, a lot of people are seeing the UK as being uninvestable right now so private equity deals are actually higher on the continent currently than they are in the uk where it's usually been the other way around Mm -hmm. Um, so the kind of macroeconomic dynamics that are going on around the world right now are really uh, putting some of the brakes on deal flow this year and it may be the end of the merger wave that we've seen for the last 10 years
1: Mm. and do you and do you think the legislators and regulators are acting responding appropriately to these uh, macroeconomic factors
0: they think they are (laughs) Uh, and if you talk to companies and deal makers they would say no so Mm. it all depends on your view of the world Mm -hmm. Uh, the national security concerns if they put that into the uh, regulatory um, design that will open up a lot more deals at a much smaller level Uh, to more regulatory scrutiny. So it will slow deals down. It will make a lot of deals not happen. Uh, So we'll see what occurs in that area, because right now it's not officially part of the review regime uh, and protocol. But if it does get to be part of it, then uh, it will slow things down significantly. Mm
1: -hmm. And um, given the number of mega corporations in existence and maybe I think a lot of uh, organizations are struggling to um, adapt in terms of agility to to sort of um, uh, changes in the industry, do you think we'll start seeing more demergers or corporate breakups over the next few years? Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. And it's a a good phrase, demerging, because Mm -hmm. that's really what they're being told to do and sometimes compelled to do through legislation. And we're seeing they both in the EU, the UK, uh, and the US, where they're looking at big tech these days and, and whether they need to be uh, broken up legislatively. So they're becoming the new standard oil of uh, the 21st century uh, with their controlling in some people's views too much of our lives and they wanna break them up. So. Uh, we will see the demergers. and as people start uh, di- uh, divesting different assets and different aspects of their business, that will also create acquisitions on the other side because as those divestitures occur, they may become a standalone entity or they may get acquired by somebody else. So mergers and acquisitions are all about creative destruction in uh, markets. So as one industry gets broken up, another industry will start acquiring those assets. So, uh, it, deals don't really go away, they just take a different form.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. So um, obviously um, a career in MA is like a big thing for, I guess, MBAs or graduates anyway. Do you have any... Um, why do you think that is?
0: M&A has always been very interesting for the, uh, MBAs. It's uh, it's something that is seen as... An, kind of the apex of the pecking order for whatever reason in the financial world. The deal makers make all the high profile news for big acquisitions. And uh, so there's some sort of uh, attractive element there from this uh, hierarchical view of the world. And it's also never a dull moment uh, from my perspective it's always been about interesting and stimulating work because I get bored very easily and the merger and acquisition world is not boring at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, every deal is different. Every deal has dynamics that keep you very interested. Uh, it's a lot of hard work. It's 24-7, both on the transaction side and the implementation, the integration side. And if you want a career that's going to keep you uh not just working hard, but also intellectually stimulated and rewarded. Well, there's a reward to it, uh, both financially and psychologically. Um, mergers and acquisitions are a good way to go. Mm-hmm. But you better be ready to do a lot of work.
1: <laughs> yes, so, so I've heard. Um, so what, sort of, um, what research are you doing at the moment?
0: So I have what's called the Oxford m Insights Project going, and I'm doing uh, – uh, just a very quick, short uh, 10 question survey around mergers and acquisitions and uh, what are the best practices, the worst practices across the deal spectrum. So everything from formulating an M&A strategy, valuing companies, uh, doing due diligence, doing a transaction, then doing your implementation. Uh, And I'm looking across industries and at various levels of the organization. So everyone from kind of mid-management all the way through senior executives. And uh, that's going into my new book on M&A. My previous book was called The Complete Guide to Mergers and Acquisitions. Bit of a misnomer because I didn't have a lot of the uh, transaction elements in it. Uh, I had a lot of the strategy and then the implementation components. Although it's been a good seller, very good seller over the last almost 20 years now. Um, my next book is going to be called uh, Winning at the Acquisition Game, uh, taking a little bit from Michael Porter's original uh, articles on mergers and acquisitions. And uh, the subtitle is Pitfalls and Best Practices Across the MA Process. So I'm really trying to look at the entire process from uh, A to Z and look at what companies do well what they could improve at every stage of the process
1: mm-hmm. that sounds really interesting and it'd be pretty helpful for M- M- mba students that are
0: hopefully it'll that- be helpful if sometimes some people might think it's a sure cure for insomnia but <laughs> i think there's a I'm need i'm
1: sure that's not the case um, when when is it due out
0: uh, i probably come out in, next year in 2020
1: thank you for listening to this week's podcast if you have any questions, comments or suggestions, you can reach us at sbspodcasts.ocs.ac.uk. Until next time, goodbye.